Well, Father, as we grab our Bibles now and we dig into your word, would you use it, as you do so often, as a cleansing agent, as an awakening call, as a, a confronting reality in our lives, Lord, defining truth for us, using your word through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to build us up and strengthen us, that we would be your people And that we would walk in the truth and that we would love the truth and that we would shine as bright lights in a dark and dying world. Father, we commit our time to you. Refresh us and renew us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I detour from our First Timothy series to address with the timetable of our national elections, local and national elections, And I stand before you as your pastor with a concerned heart. I I think that it's not inappropriate for a pastor at a time like this to address issues that are addressed in the Word of God. I'm concerned. I want to be careful in my concern not to be negative. I believe that God is sovereign and God is in control. I want to be careful in my concern not to be against people. We should be for all people. No matter their background, no matter their choices, we are for people, for the gospel, for change. In my concern, I don't want to be caustic or bitter. I want to be lovingly righteous, courageously clear. But I'm concerned. I suspect that I'm in a room fairly well filled with concerned people. You know the concerns that I know. I'm concerned about the financial framework of our country and the violation of clear biblical teaching that the debtor is subject to the lender, that we have become powerless because of our mismanagement of finances You know, like I know, that if $100 bills were windrowed out like mown hay in a July sun, you could not bail them up fast enough on a daily basis to simply pay the amount of money we're borrowing every day. It's outrageous. We talk about a fiscal cliff from which we're going to step. How can it be stopped? I'm concerned not only about finances, I'm concerned about our young people. I'm concerned about a a generation of young people who, multiple generations really now, who have been taught and are taught by meaningful people in their lives, educated people in their lives, people to whom they are to subject themselves, that they were not created by a loving God who has a plan for their lives and who has a standard of righteousness and that there is a such thing as right and wrong, but rather that they somehow came from some spontaneous combustion bang and maybe crawled out of some scum pond somewhere and maybe swang from a tree. Is swang a word? I, of course, am concerned about the issues of life and death and abortion and euthanasia. It bothers me to have 
The highest offices in our land stand before large audiences and to proclaim with vain swollen necks that it is a right behavior and proper for a mother to rip a living life from within themselves and kill it. I'm concerned about a distortion of reality that I feel in younger generations They lack a discernment now and they don't know what is of more value, a kitten, an eagle, or an unborn baby. One is protected and one is not. And it's not the order in which you might think it would be. I'm concerned about the marriage issue, of course, and a biblical morality. I'm concerned that People running for office within our own county and across the country and again in the highest offices of the land will stand with great enthusiasm and proclaim on their websites and announce in their stump speeches with great energy that it is right and proper and even a beautiful thing for a man to come together with a man in marriage or a woman together with a woman in marriage when God says that's an abomination. It's an abomination. And so we've become a people who call evil good and good evil and we're confused and we're confusing the next generation. And, and so, though I may in large part be preaching to the choir today, I trust I can speak with some clarity to the issues that it is indeed, Proverbs fourteen thirty four righteousness that exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This isn't just an American thing. This is a people thing. All people everywhere who suppress righteousness and elevate darkness come under the wrathful hand of a holy God. Proverbs 16.12 It is an abomination for kings to do evil. And so I'm concerned this morning. And I'm concerned with what you're going to do with your power this week. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. But I'm here to remind you that you have a little slice of the pie. I have a penny in my hand. And, and let's picture walking through a great mall. And in the middle of the mall are two great fountains. And, and one fountain, though both are flawed and leaky, one fountain spews a water that is somewhat fresh and refreshing and, and has a clarity to it and a, and a purity to it at some level, and a biblical morality to it at some level, and the other fountain is, is spewing out abominable things and saying, it's good, come drink from the well, come to this fountain, it's a pure fountain when it's a corrupt fountain. And the way our system has been set up, and I am not here to say that our founding fathers were all born-again, baptized, Baptist, conservative, Christian guys, because they were probably mixed up and confused, and some of them were pagan and hedonistic. And But I am here to say that there's a reason they chiseled Bible verses into the buildings of our state offices. There is a reason our founding fathers wrote on parchment biblical principle and verses describing a system of law that is based on a law that comes from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us, the God who chiseled in stone ten Lines of instruction that Moses shared with his people and upon God's law it was established. Flawed as we are. And in this system of government, you hold power. Where are their bosses? I mean, it's all become convoluted and it doesn't feel like it, but 
Supposedly, they can't do a thing unless we appoint them. And I know that it's like throwing a penny in the fountain. It's meaningless. So it would seem, but if enough people fear God and stand for righteousness and take their part of the power pie, as microscopic as it is, and are a steward of righteousness for their slice of power, throw it in the pond that at least has a platform that would stand for a biblical morality of marriage, that would stand for the promotion of life, not death. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to be a people that, that long for righteousness, that live for righteousness, that live humbly before a holy God, acknowledging that someday we will stand accountable. I think that we need to live as a people who recognize that we are on, on a very fragile framework, a very fragile scaffolding that could collapse at any time. And in our arrogance, and the leaders of our, of our land and communities, in their arrogance, believe themselves to be very powerful. And they can't keep a little water from washing sand up over the storm walls. And they refuse to see God's hand at work. I'm reminded of another nation at another time. It's recorded for us in our Bible. And it also was a nation that was breaking. Will you turn with me on our way to Jeremiah to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to camp in Jeremiah this morning. But I want to give you the context in which... Jeremiah lived the historical context of our study this morning. Number one this morning, first of all, we see a nation that was breaking. Not unlike our own nation, this nation had some leaders who were righteous and a majority of leaders who were consumed with self and naturalism and had no regard for God. If you go back as far as chapter 21 of 2 Kings, and you need to be reminded that 2 Kings is really just a historical record. It is most meaningful to the people of Israel and Judah of old. It, history was very important to identify who they were, from where they had come, how God had been at work in their nation and in their land. That's why as we read, you'll notice as you glance with your eyes down on the page, you'll notice that it'll give the names, particularly in this section, of their mothers. Most of them are sons of the previous king. And so in the account, it gives the name of the mother from whom that child was born. There's a name, if you have chapter headings, in 2 Kings chapter 21, we'll begin there. And you need to know that Jeremiah isn't alive quite yet. This is right at the beginning of Jeremiah's life timeline frame. It's in the beginning of the era in which Jeremiah lived, 2 Kings 21. A couple of these names you're going to recognize, but know this, that Manasseh, it says in chapter 21, verse 1, was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And all you need to know, and we won't take the time to look it up, but it's as clear as can be, is uh, that verse 11 sums it up. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations. He was an abominable king. 
And he did horrific things. He took God's temple and he perverted it by bringing into the temple child sacrifice. Can you imagine anybody that would kill their babies? What kind of culture would do that? They had the most grotesque forms of pagan worship that they adopted from the neighboring communities and neighboring countries. He built up altars to the Ashtaran and uh, to Molech. And Molech is the god on which they burned babies and sizzled them in the brass hands of their grotesque face statues with hands and light bonfires under these brass hands and lay their infant children on these brass hands. And they elevated it and they said, this is a good thing. You need to come do this. Do this. Come worship here. And it was perverted. And, and as always happens from Genesis to Revelation in the record of mankind, when people reject God, almost always in their story, some of you may be able to give testimony of this in your story, that when you rejected God, almost immediately you entered into sexual immorality. And that's the other thing that was rampant in their country. The rejection of God and almost the wholesale perversion of their country sexually. To the point that the sexual act was used in perverse ways and it was called worship. God sends a famine, they don't wake up. But God in his mercy, chapter 22, sends a little eight-year-old boy after Manasseh dies. Manasseh was kind of referenced later on, and he's referenced the sins of Manasseh, the sins of Manasseh, the sins of Manasseh. He was so horrific that it was as though God choked on it and couldn't get over it. But then God in his mercy gave a brief reprieve. And Josiah Reagan, I mean Josiah Reigns in Judah came into power there. And Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He was only eight years old. And look at verse 2 says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He repairs the temple in 3 through 7. Hilkiah, one of the priests digging around in the temple repairs, finds a copy of the book of the law of Moses. They didn't even have a copy of a Bible, you might say. The Old Testament was gone. The Ten Commandments. And digging around in the rubble of the temple, they find some scrolls and they say, what's this? And if thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy might. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. They bring it and it says, verse 11 of chapter 22, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothing and he grieved. He's a young man, but he has all the power and he commands the priest to read the word. Go inquire of the Lord for me. And then he says in verse, uh, the end of verse 13, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it. Wow. Wouldn't it be great to have a king who would shred his suit and say, Great is the wrath of God who's coming upon us because we have not done what is written in the book of this law. Listen. There is only one God. There is only one God with absolute righteous truth. There are not many ways of righteousness. You cannot in- ignore God and think nothing becomes of it. You cannot promote godless agendas decade after decade after decade and think you're going to maintain 
your strength as a country. It's not going to happen. And so now I want to show you, now, about now, at the end of Josiah, Josiah gets killed in, uh, towards the end of chapter 23. And then it says at the end of verse 30, And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. And so Josiah goes down after, what was it, 31 years. Jehoahaz, is in verse 31, is 23 years old when his father's killed. The people appoint him to power. And we see that in one generation, from father to son, we go from a godly, righteous king to a godless, wicked king. And it says in verse 32, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to what all that his fathers had done. Based upon the sins of Manasseh, God began to send judgment on Judah and Israel. He gives them a reprieve during Josiah. And then five wicked kings in a row for several decades are going to rule. And during these five kings in a row, there's one voice, as it were, crying in the wilderness. And his name is Jeremiah. Notice really quickly, let's look at the kings before we look at the prophet. This is a nation that was breaking, and here's why it was breaking. Chapter 23, 32 that we just read. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what Jehoahaz did. Jehoiakim comes after him. He's 25 years old. Verse 37, let your eyes fall there. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Second king. Jehoiachin replaces Jehoiakim. Jehoiachin, it says in verse 8, was 18 years old when he became king. Verse 9, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all this that his father had done. Jerusalem is then captured. Zedekiah reigns under another king. The king of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are they're surrogates now, but he's a surrogate king. Zedekiah reigns in Judah. He's 21 years old when he becomes king. For 11 years he rules in Jerusalem. Verse 19. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Jerusalem then falls. Seems like there was another king in there somewhere. But we have a nation that is breaking, and they're breaking. Why? Because they have wicked rulers. They have godless men in leadership who don't care what a righteous, holy God thinks of them. We move on in our message today, though, from a nation that was breaking to a prophet that was weeping. A prophet that was weeping. Will you turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, please? We're introduced to Jeremiah with these familiar verses of his calling while he's still in his mother's womb. Verse 4, chapter 1, Jeremiah. So keep in mind that we are now reading what Jeremiah wrote down, most of which came to him from direct revelation from God. And Jeremiah is God's voice. It was not a popular job. People didn't like him. They threw rocks and rotten fruit at him, rotten tomatoes. They threw him in a muddy pit. God even told him he couldn't get married just to be an illustration of in his celibacy, that he, he, that he was unworthy of marriage, and it was a word picture. God had him do all kinds of things. His main job was to be a mouthpiece, a voice, through these four or five wicked kings that we just gave an account from over the course of a few decades, and there's one voice crying out, Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. Wrath is coming. Pay attention. And they scoffed and they mocked, and it was the most politically incorrect message you've ever heard was Jeremiah's message. 
Jeremiah was a special guy. Chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. We pro-lifers often reference these verses. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. God had a plan from the second that the that the genetic DNA code came together and the ladder of the DNA molecules formed and within just a few weeks there was a beating heart and brain waves and God says, you're my man and I've got a plan for you. And thankfully his mother didn't use preventive medicine provided free of charge from the government to strip the life from within her womb. Then I said, oh Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth. He's like us. He thought that serving God was kind of hard. I don't really want to do this. This isn't isn't really my ideal job, God. And furthermore, like Moses of old, he remembered, oh, I can't speak, so how can I be your prophet? Do not say uh, you are only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so in boldness, Jeremiah does. He can't speak. He just has to listen. God's going to tell him everything to say. God begins to tell him, and he confronts the kings. He confronts the country. I want you to see, though, that he was a prophet who was weeping. Turn to chapter 8. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because he's the prophet calling a nation that was breaking back to righteousness. 8.18. Look at 8.18 to the end of the chapter. Jeremiah says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Isn't God even here? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Jeremiah says, verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That's where Jeremiah gets his name, the weeping prophet. So we have a nation that was breaking. We have a prophet that was weeping. He's also weeping over his breaking nation, but he's weeping over the number, number three, the judgment that was coming. The judgment that was coming. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 13 and look at the judgment that was coming. Here's what God says. One of the first revelations that Jeremiah received from the Lord is this. In chapter 1 verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls and around and all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. That's why Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, because the judgment that was coming 
He understood clearly that he was in a window of time that could not stay open forever. That based upon the sins of Manasseh and every king since then except Josiah, that the sins of the people had been accruing and the patience of God had been ticking away and the window was going to close and God was preparing armies from the north and from around to surround the walls of Jerusalem, which ultimately they did, burning the buildings, knocking down the walls, creating it into just a pile of rubble. God was preparing other nations that he pictures with Jeremiah as it were a boiling pot from the north that was going to spill over and swoosh through the land and destroy them. So we have to ask ourselves the next question, and that is, well, what's the reason they were sinking? We know they had these wicked kings, but what's at the heart of it? What's the, what's the dynamic? What's the integral point, the touch point, that if, if we could address this issue... We could make change. The weeping prophet is concerned about the judgment that's coming. Here's the reason they were sinking. Number four, the reason they were sinking. Let's turn the page to chapter 2, verses 17 and 19 and take a look. The reason they were sinking, verse 17, is summed up. Have you not brought this upon yourself? Haven't you brought this on yourself? For what? By forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way. In other words, people, there was a time when you followed after God. There was a time when you recognized God and you recognized godliness and you had a framework of righteousness, parameters over which you wouldn't cross. But then you did this. You forsook him. You turned away from it. Jeremiah goes on to use a couple different pictures. One picture he uses is, is an expression that God calls out and he says, wasn't I a beautiful spring of a fresh bubbling brook of water and you turned away from the fresh water and you went over and some of you can picture it from, your, from the old days at your grandma's house, the cistern under the front porch and it leaks and it's scummy and there's dead animals and mice floating around in it and it's filthy, germ-infested micro-infested water, and you gave up on the beautiful spring of the living waters of God, and you go over, and there's the mouse, and you scoop up, and you say, oh, this is good, this is good. And you suck in the algae, scum, slime water from the cistern pit of corruption, and the flesh loves it. More, 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 give me more. God says, what's wrong with my water? Isn't it a living water? Isn't it a pure spring? Don't I meet your needs? And that you would turn... Another word picture that he used that is powerful. It's powerful. It's a mature word picture. It has to do with donkeys and camels and a certain time of the month and racing across the desert looking for someone to service them, another animal to service them. And he said, that's what you do. You go whoring after other gods. What is wrong with me? I was your groom. You were my bride. What are you doing? And now you go and in wide open nature on the top of the hills, you adulterate with other gods on the hilltops in wide open space. What's wrong with you? They forsook God. Verse 19, he narrows it down even further. Your evil will chastise you. 2.19 And your apostasy, turning away from truth, will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Here's where he sums it up. 
The fear of me is not in you. Bam. I tell you, I think that we in the United States of America parallel Judah and Israel of old in losing the fear of God. There's no awe. We are naturalistic. We're man-centered. God does not intimidate us. There's no fear. Listen, you cannot ignore sin. You cannot adore sin. You cannot indulge in sin without consequence. And that's what God is saying. You lost your fear, and so sin has become precious to you. Chapter 7, 9 through 11 gives us a list of the sin that they were involved in that they loved so much. Chapter 7, 9 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on and do these things, do all these abominations? They are corrupt people. And yet they think somehow God's going to be pleased in them. And when I, I looked up in one of my other Bibles for a different translation, I was looking and I noticed that I had circled that, put a footnote down at the bottom, and I had challenged myself with some phrases down at the bottom that had to do with the reality that even if you don't do these sins, do you love watching those sins? What's the difference between people who entertain themselves with these sins and the people who enter into those sins? Oh, we got to be careful, don't we? What is the fear of God, by the way? The fear of God is a theme that permeates the pages of Scripture. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, over 150 times, the fear of God is referenced in Scripture. I need to go quickly right now. We're not going to look up all 150 of them. Um, but let me give you a, a, biblical, a quick biblical summary of what the fear of God is. And then I'll give you my definition of the fear of God. Here's just, a, here's just a scratching of the surface. Some of you enjoy Bible study and others of you ought to enjoy Bible study. And this is something you could do. You could Google this and you can go to websites that will help you out easily. Um, uh, Bible producing websites easily always have a mechanism for a concordance. And you look up the fear of God. And you just spend a few days with your yellow tablet and your Bic pen and you just begin to write out the fear of God, what it does. And just kind of let your chart work its way to the right. Make a list. The fear of God is this. And then, then rephrase it in your own words. And then try to summarize it. Try to join together the ones that have the same meaning. And, and you will find it very insightful to do a study, a word study on the fear of God. Here's some of the kinds of things that you will learn when you study the fear of God. Listen quickly. I'll talk quickly. And we'll all get out of here and go watch football, okay? That's all right, isn't it? Shouldn't have said that. The fear of God. First of all, do you know that it's commanded? I'm only going to give you one verse. I'll rattle off a few references for those who are taking notes. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to read one verse. I have multiple verses on each. Do you know that the fear of God is commanded? Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. I said I was going to give you one. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's Proverbs 23, 17. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. 
Psalm 33, 8. Psalm 33, 8. 1 Peter 2.17, 1 Peter 2.17, it's also in the New Testament. The fear of God is commanded and required. Secondly, it is fuel for obedience. The fear of God is a necessary dynamic to drive us to be obedient people. Deuteronomy 5.29, Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments, God said in Deuteronomy 5.29. Thirdly, it will keep us from sin and evil. Not only will it drive us to obedience, but it will hold us back as a firewall from sin and evil. I wrote down, it cleanses the palate of our taste for sin. The fear of God will cleanse the palate of its thirst for sin. Proverbs 3, 7, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You can also look up Exodus 20, 20, Exodus 20, 20. Proverbs 3, 7 is what I quoted Proverbs 8.13, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Number four, the fear of the Lord brings blessing to your life. The fear of the Lord will bring blessing to your life. Psalm 112.1, Psalm 112.1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And that phrase is repeated over and over. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. I quoted Psalm 112, 1. Psalm 115, 13. Psalm 115, 13. Psalm 128, 1. Proverbs 22, 4. Here it is. Here's what the fear of God will bring you. It is a command. It's required. It's fuel for obedience. It's a firewall from sin and evil. And it will bring blessing to your life. Now, what is it? Here's my definition. Because it's hard to find. It's just a concise definition. Now, listen closely. What is the fear of, the, of God? The fear of God is a life or behavior. It is, let me back up. It is a life and behavior altering Awe, A-W-E, like what's up on the screen. And reverence and terror that springs from the overwhelming reality of all that God is in His holiness, authority, power, sovereignty, and sovereignty, balanced even by His love, though. That's a vanard definition, isn't it? Let me give it to you again. What is the fear of God? It is a, it is a life and behavior altering Awe that comes over me. I am so awed by God that it alters my life and my behavior with a reverence, a hunkering down before God, at the same time, even a terror that wants to well up within me. Whoa! That springs from within me from the overwhelming reality of all that God is in His holiness, His authority, His power, His sovereignty, and his love, even in all of the sum total of his attributes, he is so overwhelming that it has terror, it has appreciation, it has awe, it springs to worship. It's an incredible reality. It definitely means at some level, I'm scared of God a little bit. Kind of the way I was scared of my dad a little bit. Do you know that feeling? Do you know that I knew every day of my life that no one loved me more than my father. And I knew that he was for me all the time. Do you know that when he would give me a certain look or he would whistle with a certain tone, buddy, you better know I shut it down whatever I was doing right then. 
Why? Because mixed in with the love and the security of my relationship with my father was a little bit of terror for his authority and his power and the reality of his justice system that mainly involved a belt that he had folded in half about this long. I never doubted his love. I was also worried about crossing certain lines in my dad's life. That's how it is with God. It's a behavior-altering reality. And we are commanded to have that in our lives. Don't you see how this works? Don't you see how people who have no fear of God do not worry about being accountable to God? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us we're going to stand wide open naked before him, give an account of every word. Bomb! I can handle it. Arrogant, proud, thinking that you can handle God. It's like saying you can beat LeBron James in one-on-one. You can say it all you want. It doesn't matter what you say. It isn't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. You know, you just, you just want to hunker down and bow down. And when you lose that, you begin to cross lines that you were never intended to cross. And when you lose that awe and you lose that fear, you begin to think you're something that you're not. And you'll stand before stadiums filled with people and you will shout out and cry and say, you are proud of your policies that maintain abortion. And you will shout out to everyone that you, would, you believe with all your heart that men should marry men. And women should marry women. And God clearly says in Romans 1, that only happens when I give you over to your own wicked heart. It's an abomination. It's an abomination. We're not against people. We're not against people who struggle with their feelings. We're not against people who struggle with their identity. We're not against any people of any... We're for people. We're all about people. We're all about what the gospel can do in people's lives. But we're for righteous reality. Not a made-up distortion of reality. Well, there was a pardon that was waiting. We are beyond out of time. We had a nation that was breaking. We met a prophet who was weeping. There was judgment that was coming. The reason they were sinking is because they lost their awe and their fear of God. Let me just conclude by reading some verses from chapter 18 from Jeremiah. And this is familiar to some of you. This is when Jeremiah is told by God to go to the potter's house. Number five, this is the pardon that was waiting the pardon that was waiting. Listen and hear well what I'm going to say. We'll be out of here just momentarily. Jeremiah chapter 18. And remember, just picture Jeremiah with one king after another, and he's the voice of righteousness. He is the politically incorrect voice of the nation. He is the one that's worried about the boiling pot coming down. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Verse 2, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. You can picture it, can't you? He's got his hands muddy and wet, remember? The disc, and he's spinning. He's probably spinning it with his feet, or he's got some other drive system, and he's got his molded clay, and he's working it. I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Can't you picture that? 
it's wet and it's soft and he's making it and all of a sudden he crumples it back up and he starts over again. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Praise God. You see that? He's not talking just to Israel. He's not talking just to Judah, the southern kingdom. He says, and if the nation or kingdom that I pluck up in my hand, and I might remake and reshape it, but if they will repent, I will relent. That's the key. That's the key. That we as a people, starting with the church, starting individually one at a time, Come before a holy God and just repent. (sighs) That one person at a time, revival could sweep through our churches. That one person at a time, the evangelistic gospel movement would sweep through the masses and people in our inner cities would be saved and people in the country would be saved. And the second great awakening in the United States in the late 1800s, Entire communities dismissed their police forces because there was no crime. So many people in the community were saved. Isn't that something? You got to come just as you are. And we're a nation that needs to bow humbly in the presence of God. I want to close singing that old hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea. There's a pardon that's waiting. For those who would repent, Luke reminds us to not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can, that they can do, but he warns us, Jesus, in Jesus' own words, he said, but I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he, he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Come, bow down before a holy God. It's what our nation needs. It's what our churches need. It's what we need in our families to repent and forsake sin. To let God restore and rebuild. So this week, I think my penny dropped. There it is. So this week, when you take your little bite of power and you toss it in the fountain, you do your very best to toss it in the fountain that has the cleanest water to it in the eyes of a holy God. Father, we thank you for Jeremiah's great testimony. Lord, we probably have no idea the misery through which this godly man lived. Decades of miserable ministry, and yet he was obedient, and we have recorded for us his words. Thank you for that wonderful picture at the potter's house and how you can reshape and rebuild. And Father, we would recognize you are sovereign over the nations. We would recognize that your timeline is ticking. We recognize that you have a plan of the ages. Father, in the middle of all that, we would pray for a righteous restoration of godliness in our country, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, and in our families. 
Father, that we would personally take responsibility for our own sinfulness, come to you just as we are, confess and forsake that sin, and that you would restore and rebuild. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.